0: Welcome, everyone, to a very special fifth episode of Season 2 of the Northern Spin Podcast. My name's Michael Taylor, and from the business desk, I ought to say that, doesn't yeah, it, Chris? yes, absolutely. And as always, I'm joined by the Archbishop of Banterbury himself, Chris Maguire. No doubt loaded up with lots of quips and digs at me absolutely. For, the for the next uh, 40
1: minutes or so. And the executive editor of Business Cloud. Um, Yeah, Michael, it's been an amazing amazing week, been an amazing year. Uh, And we're going to reflect on the last 12 months in this special bumper edition of Northern Spin. Can you believe it sounds like that song, you know, Partridge in a Pear Tree. We've had nine interest rate rises in the last 12 months, four chancellors, four levelling up ministers. I'm going to ask you to name them all. Three prime ministers and two monarchs. But before we get stuck into the detail, we have got two very important thank yous.
0: Indeed, we are the faces of Northern Spain, but we couldn't do it without our production company, What Media, who produced this podcast. So a massive thanks to Sam, Chris, Abby, James, Ellis, and all the other members of the What Media team. Thank you for all that you do.
1: Yeah, they've become friends of ours as well, as have Oscar Technology as well. They're our sponsors. Um, I mentioned Andy Morrell, but uh, Matthew, I spoke to you last week, the MD, the rest of the team out there for their support. We couldn't have done, we couldn't have turned this crazy idea into reality without their help. So uh, they've had a record break in 2022. They've got even more exciting plans for 2023, as have we. Indeed, so thank you Oscar Technology for all the support that you give us. Before we look
0: back on 2022 though Chris let's have a quick round up of the last week do you want to have a bit of a kick off about where we're up to?
1: Yeah, one of the nice things about Northern Spin is the level of engagement we get and it's not just sycophants telling us they love us because they don't, um, but but we've got 269 followers now on uh, on Twitter, that's uh, northern underscore spin one, um, but I spoke last week about my own experiences with the minor strike in 1984-85 and uh, obviously the strikes have I've gone on. It's all part of the, the strikes, you know, that we've got nationally at the moment. And, and I got contacted by a guy who went to the same school as me, Roger um, Manwood School in Sandwich. He went a few years after me. He's a few years younger than me. His dad worked at a nearby coal mine at Betts Hangar as well. And uh, I just thought we're reaching people. And that's a really nice thing. Not everyone agrees with us. I wouldn't expect them to. Um, But that's great. I hosted an event in Accrington. Accrington Stanley Football Club, which is run by a fantastic guy, owned by a fantastic guy uh, called Andy Holt. Yeah,
0: I follow him on Twitter. He's a real, in in the whole world of football, he's a real voice of
1: reason. He is, yeah. And he's also a successful businessman, but he's a straight talker as well. And he's very open about uh, what it's like to run a football club. Accrington Stanley was basically going to close 100%. Um, it didn't have any money it had really poor community facilities he bought it otherwise Acklington would have lost its football club which would have been an absolute tragedy now I host an event on Friday for a fantastic business you must have it on your radar called Sundown Solutions um, the entertainment was provided by top loader you'll remember them of course they've sold over two million albums had their songs streamed a million a billion times um, but what's interesting is just that um, he's been very public on Twitter in the last week or so. He's uh, at loggerheads with the local council, Heimburn Council. Um, and it's just a real shame, actually, because what he's doing there, he's got live music on the map. He's got Accrington Stanley on the map. Um, and he just has a really poor relationship with the council at the moment. Not good.
0: Yeah, they've been standing outside his hospitality facilities, presumably when you were booming out your uh, calls to action at the event on the weekend or whenever it was that you did it,
1: um, measuring the noise levels and then grassing you up. Yeah, it, it, well, if they did my noise uh, levels, uh, they would be uh, they would lose their license. But no, it was in May this year apparently, and they're outside in the long grass, and um, they hit them with a uh, I think a noise abatement notice in September this year. And it's just that's not what you want from your local council. You want them to support. No, the we're, local we're going to talk club. about
0: levelling up later on. And one of the things that's come out in a number of economic analyses is the importance of cultural institutions in places to make them better to give people hope. And if Heimburn Council can't see uh, uh, beyond the noses on the front of their faces that actually
1: there's an asset
0: right there in the middle of their town, then it's crazy. And we've crazy talked, about it with,
1: we talked about it with night and day last week as well. Yeah. You know, um, and, and obviously, Heinburn Council, if you want to come on and, uh, you know, give us your side of the story, feel free. But as far as I can see, this is a, a poor result all round.
0: Yeah, well, I'll be taking this up with Graham Jones, who's, uh, who I sometimes see at Blackman Rovers, he used to be the MP for Heinburn, He got beaten in the last general election. I think he's a Heinburn Councilor now. Um. And he's he's had a couple of ding dongs with Andy Holt online. I think he's trying to sort of put the council's position. But yeah, maybe we'll return to that as a story. Anyway, Chris, that's enough of all of that stuff. Um, it's been my first week at Business Desk. I've really enjoyed it. I've had my first. I've been to my first press conference, which was actually hosted by Andy Burnham, who was a bit surprised to see me in the audience. Um, so I've had ten minute deadlines, off the record briefings as well on a story I'm working on, a long a long build one. Um, and, of course, I've had lots of meetings with the team building up for our events next year. It's, well, great. it's, it's great to be back on the front line of journalism. No,
1: and although um, although our uh, podcast listeners can't see this, uh, Michael is dressed head to foot in a particular well-known brand of clothes that he is the model for. Is that right? I am wearing
0: clothes that have been given to me, and some of them I've bought because they're really good, from a Swedish outdoor brand called Haglofs. Perfect for any but Apparently Christmas. in Scandinavian it's pr- pronounced
1: Uglurfs. Well, is it
0: in, in the Western world it's Well I wouldn't, be surprised,
1: I wouldn't be surprised to see a deluge of people buying stuff for Christmas now that we've mentioned <laughs> that.
0: Well, they, you can get them in a store in Manchester called The End, which is newly opened in the old Paper Chase site, yeah, just
1: on the Dean's Gate. Down there, I, I can I can actually hear the uh, pitter patter of footsteps running down <laughs> Deansgate now. Hey, let's have a look back on 2022 because there's a lot to get through. It's okay. been an so, absolutely crazy year.
0: Okay, let's break it down into national, northern, and cultural. In the first bit, Chris, let's you, you can kick us off talking about the national political picture.
1: Yeah, and I thought about this. I thought, where do you begin? 2022 will go down as a year of three. Prime Ministers. We started off with Boris Johnson. We had the seven-week nightmare that was Liz Truss, who was outlasted by a lettuce, and ended with Rishi Sunak, who started the year as the first of four chancellors. Now, I hope, the listeners, you're still with me. If we start with Johnson, um, I think history will judge him as the great big liar. I thought the worm turned for him, actually, not this year, but last year, in November 2021, when he tried to uh, shake up the parliamentary standard system, together with some backbench Tories, in order to save disgraced... Colleague Owen um, Patterson, who'd been paid a fortune for lobbying on behalf of uh, some companies. Then he stood up in the House of Commons to insist that quote, all guidance was followed in relation to Partygate, we know that's not true because he got a fine, another barefaced lie. One of the things that I remember is he brought politics into the gutter by accusing Sakir Starmer of not prosecuting Jimmy Savile, which led to one of his closest, the most talented aides resigning as well. That was dreadful. Um, then he claims not to have known that Chris Pincher, who quit as deputy chief whip after allegedly groping two men at a private members club after drinking too much, had previous form for this. Referring to him, I put the word allegedly in, as Pinch by name, pinched by nature. Um, And I think Otto English summed it up best with a quote that he put on Twitter. He said, Boris Johnson is a self-promoting egotistical man-child who couldn't be trusted with an empty Welk stall. Well, quite frankly, I think that's offensive, actually, to Welk stalls. Um Am I being too harsh, as I remember Boris Johnson?
0: No, but you've been very wise after the event. I would actually look back to the summary of Boris Johnson's character by people who knew him best, who worked with him in his time in journalism. And people like Max Hastings, who was his editor at the Daily Telegraph, wrote many pieces saying how this man was a totally unfit character to hold the highest office. I think he even said a lot of those things when, he was, when Johnson was standing to be London Mayor. So we were continually warned about him, but people thought, oh, you know, he's got funny hair, he's a bit of a laugh. And, he, he, and the Tories regarded him as what they called a Heineken politician because he reaches parts of the population that they couldn't. And so they were, they, they were prepared to turn a blind eye to some of his worst excesses. But you're right, the truth eventually caught up with him. A Labour MP who, who I spoke to about him said, Johnson just always looked forward to the day where he could be a former prime minister, where he could have the speaker's fees much more than you probably got for doing a corporate gig in Accrington, um, or I'd ever get, free from the responsibility ever of having to make those difficult, unpopular decisions. And I felt angry and violent by the end of it about Johnson. And, you know, his smirk used to just trigger me and his bluster. Uh, It was an appalling prime minister. I think he'll go down in history, not just as the great big fat liar, as you said, Chris, correctly, but an, an appalling person, but you must have thought he was great at some yeah, point. I'll be
1: honest with you. I, I wanted to like Boris Johnson. I did quite like him as a person. He made me laugh. He was entertaining. He was good value, not like some of the prime ministers we've got who were just prime ministerial. But then it was just it was just taking us through uh, idiots, or you know. And it was the Owen Paterson one. That was the one that completely turned it for me. And uh, but the fact the fact that um, 110. MPs, apparently. I listened to an interview with Graham Brady, um, you know, the uh, chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, said that 110 MPs were willing to take him back, you know, when he got beaten by Rishi Sunak. That in itself is a damning indictment on the Conservative Party. Absolutely. So if Johnson was the liar, what was trust? Well, trust would be somewhere between imposter and pretender. And the fact that Liz Truss was able to become Prime Minister of this country is a shameful indictment of the Conservative Party. Trust said whatever she needed to say to win the leadership race. Now, I was trying to think about an analogy. And the one I came up with was Liz Truss was like a Russian doll. And what I mean by that is she was completely wooden. She was fundamentally completely hollow. Every time you took out off one layer of this russian doll you thought the one inside would have a bit more talent but you never did to the point that you got to the middle and there was nothing there at all and i think that sums her up when she was assured of winning the toy leadership she immediately pulled out an interview if you remember with the bbc's nick robinson i remember that thinking to myself you know she said she couldn't spare the time but that was somebody who didn't want to you know break that Ming vase we've spoken about a lot now we worth both we both work as business journalists and trust Committed that cardinal mistake of only surrounding herself with her supporters. So you had this real paucity of talent in the cabinet. There were no representatives of Rishi Sunak side because they didn't vote for uh, Liz Truss. As a result, you had the likes of Middlebury MP Simon Clark, Easy a busy year, to be fair to him. Uh, announced as the levelling up secretary for seven weeks. Rosendale and Darwin MP, Sir Jake Berry, as the minister without portfolio and chairman of the Conservative Party, and now basically will appear anywhere slagging off the Conservatives. She did that massive U-turn early doors on fracking. Who can forget? those car crash interviews with BBC Radio Lancashire with your mate Graham Liver and BBC Radio Leeds. Where have you been hiding? You know, that was one of the lines of the year. And then we had the mini budget, which everyone remembers on September the 23rd. I want you to look at the figures because I wanted to remind myself just how bad it was. Because it's easy when you look back on stuff like this and you rely on your memory. And my memory's not as good as it once was. Chancellor, um, Chancellor Kwazi Kwarteng announced the biggest tax cut since 1972, the year of my birth, and the pound hit all-time lows against a dollar of $1.03. The markets went into turmoil. Um, I, I was listening that that in the space of a few hours, thousands of mortgage products were pulled. If Trust and, and Kwasi Kwarteng weren't politicians, if they were in charge of a bank they'd be arrested for wrecking the economy. It was horrendous. Trust was mortally damaged. She did the U-turn on a 45p tax rate at the beginning of the Tory conference. She coined the phrase anti-growth coalition, which was aimed directly at me and you. Um, I feel really angry, genuinely angry. I feel more angry at trustonomics than I do about uh, Boris Johnson. But, but uh, am I being harsh? No.
0: I think the Tory party have absolutely disgraced themselves. They, they keep saying... Uh, they want to – their method of governing the country is all rooted in strong governance, in competence, and it's been completely unraveled. And I think that's reflected in the opinion polls. Whoever they put in charge, they can't undo the damage that Truss and Johnson have done to their fundamental brand and their and what the public think of them. Um <laughs> I don't know why the Tory party didn't get her off the ballot sooner. I, I remember speaking to a Conservative MP during the leadership election in the summer and he used a, words, a word about trust that um, rhymes with half-wit, but I can't repeat on a family radio show, yeah. family yeah. broadcast. Um, and I'm like, but why aren't you doing something about it? If this is so self-evident that she's not intellectually fit to be the Prime Minister. Why are you allowing this process to go ahead and anoint her in the way that it that, that, that it was? Disgraceful. But anyway, you must love Rishi. He's rescued your Tories back, hasn't he?
1: You know what, actually? If Rishi Sunak had... If the roles had reversed and Rishi Sunak had been the first of these five prime ministers we were talking about safe pair of hands a little bit boring a little bit Keir Starmer we wouldn't be in the situation we are now but I still think we would be behind the eight ball in terms of uh, labor I think I don't labor.
0: I, I think you've been very generous with the assessment of Rishi Sunak and what he did when he was anointed chancellor during the pandemic I think some of the decisions that he made then were quite reckless and ill thought through and he he built up a lot of his own personal credibility that ultimately led to him becoming the Conservative Party leader because he gave free stuff away. I mean, who who won't love a politician that basically paid everybody to stay at home?
1: I don't think Rishi Sunak is this silver bullet, this panacea, I don't think, but he is the safe pair of hands after two disastrous PMs. Um, The fact that Labour MPs keep criticising his vast wealth and his wife's previous non-DOM status, that's getting a bit tiresome now, as much as it is about the Conservatives criticising Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the member for North uh, North Islington. I heard a quote, actually, that the Tories... No, that, that, that,
0: no hold on, Chris. That is ridiculous, because Corbyn isn't even a Labour MP anymore. Well, the Whip of course, yeah. yeah. and and yes, it is a fair... It is a criticism that Starmer's going to have to carry around with him, that he was prepared to make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister. But I think actually criticising Rishi Sunak for being out of touch and using using his wife's wealth his own background his own wealth as examples of where he comes from and what he's about i mean just don't forget you know he did a video didn't he um filling up his car and he didn't even know didn't even know how to do contactless payment you know and i think that really does play to the self-evident truth that he is out of touch with how most people live their lives i think it's a very fair criticism
1: uh, well, I heard a quote, actually, uh, and they were talking about the Tories' 80-seat majority. You know when Boris Johnson kept saying he had a mandate from the country? Yeah. You know, this 80-seat majority, mainly because he was up against Jeremy Corbyn, who was a disaster. On that, we can both agree. Um, and they said that 80-seat majority would be worth about 20 seats um, for most parties because of the fractious nature of of the Conservatives. Now, that's the reason that he had to make Suella Braverman Home Secretary six days after she was sacked after a security breach. See, when you look back on the year 2022, it's easy to miss massive, massive... You know scandals like that. He's already done two U-turns on the levelling up bill um, after backbench rebellions, one of which was uh, initiated by our friend Simon Clark over house building, and in his case, inshore wind farms. Um, so he has got this real problem where he hasn't got the majority of the party, he hasn't got everybody behind him. I think Sunak is trusted by the markets, you can see that by the way they've recovered somewhat, um, but I don't think he can do anything to tackle these really big intray issues that he's got in his inbox of the cost of living crisis, the growing industrial Action, rising interest rates. You know, we've had nine uh, interest rate rises, I think, in yeah. the last 12 months. Ukraine, I mean, you know, that's massive. That's not going to go away. You know, it'll be a year in February since Ukraine, Indeed. Uh, you know, uh, action started. Soaring inflation, struggling NHS, immigration crisis. Yeah, I'm not, I haven't seen any evidence of a plan for growth yet, but I think he's just going to try and. Steady the ship for the next twelve months, and then in the eight or nine months before the election, he's going to give us a few sweeteners. That's what I see. What do you Yeah, think? no, I, think I completely agree.
0: I, I think Sunak's a really wooden speaker. He comes across as very unconvincing, um, and I, I don't think the British people have warmed to him at all. I think, and I think all the harm, whatever capital he might have built up by the money that he gave away during lockdown, I think it's all been uh, all that political capital has been eroded now by the incompetence, the lying. And the absolute damage that the, uh, the the other two Conservative leaders have done to this country, I think they're toast. Mm. Anyway, so. As a small C conservative, Chris, it must irk you that Labour are so far ahead in the polls.
1: Well, it's funny because i am going to be honest. Right, when we first started this podcast in the week that Liz Truss became prime minister, and also it was the week, of course, you know, where where the Queen um, sadly passed away as well. If you'd said to me who would I vote for in the next election, I would have been on the—I would have been on the defence uh, because although I'm a small C conservative, I'm ticked off with what the Conservatives have done to the country over the last X number of years. But then, through the course of doing this podcast and being um, and being impregnated it, it, with your Labourist no, bias, say you've
0: been heavily influenced by me
1: and the sheer force of my personality. Absolutely, absolutely that and no, let trust well, and trust. No, I, I mean right now, all. right now, I couldn't vote. I couldn't vote for the Conservatives. I absolutely couldn't vote for the Conservatives. Um, I still think the Labour have got a long way to go. But I think in terms of what's happened over the last, you know, two years especially, but in the last twelve years, I think the fact is that I'm self-employed. I'm paying more in tax than ever. Um, I'm having to work harder than ever to make ends meet. I'm not look. I'm not trying to. Get the violin out. I'm just saying that the tax system doesn't work for me. Um, okay. I think the Conservatives have conceded the next general election. I think you can see that by the number of Tory MPs who won't be standing at the next election, including people like um, you know Deanna Davison, the uh, 29-year-old Bishop Auckland MP, seen as a bit of a rising star in the Conservative Party. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock, you know, he's not standing now. I don't think anyone will cry over that, given the fact he's had the whip removed for going in the jungle. I think. Sir Keir Starmer is doing a solid job. I'm only going to go as far as saying I think he's doing a solid job. I think they are winning the safe Labour by-election seats. They won Ermsten uh, last week in Manchester by an absolute uh, landslide. I think Labour's tagline has to be much more substantial than we're not the Tories. We need to know what they stand for. It's OK saying the government should stop the strikes, but what we do need to know is uh, you know, what sort of settlement would they be willing to pay the nurses? Would they be willing to pay 19%? Clearly not. But what would be a reasonable settlement figure? We're not hearing that. The one person who I am so impressed with... And Jacob Rees-Mogg said he was impressed with him as well, um, is West Streeting, the shadow health secretary. I mean, he's basically taken the doctors' unions to task now. He's saying that he got treated for cancer and he says that, yeah, we love the NHS, but it has to be reformed because it's not fit for purpose. Okay. Um, I, think, um, I, and I, think he, I think they're talking like a government in waiting. But what do you think of Labour's performance in 2022? I've
0: said it once and I'll say it again. The country doesn't feel like it works anymore. So I think it's very difficult for an incoming political party to criticise the way the country is working, knowing that the finances are absolutely shot, knowing that people's morale is on the floor. It wouldn't seem convincing to portray a picture that that they would be able to transform overnight the fortunes of our country. I think in 1997, Tony Blair inherited a relatively stable economy that was well managed by Ken Clark and John Major following the economic crash and Black Wednesday that had gone on a few years before, which actually triggered the Tories' unpopularity. I think it's more akin to the kind of post-Suez 1970s depression, almost depression era that we're witnessing now when Labour won a minority election in the early 70s. But I don't, I'll have to push back on you a bit there, Chris. I don't think it's fair to say any more. When we started doing this podcast and we went to Labour Party Conference for one of our early editions, you said Labour haven't got anything new to say other than we're not the Tories. I think that's changed now. I think Party Conference was a, um, a measure of that. They've got green energy plans. There's a constitutional overhaul that Gordon Brown proposed. And the confidence-building measures that Labour are doing with the business community that you're well aware of, and you know, I'm interested to know what your readers of Business Cloud or um, or your, your tech newsletter, what, what is it that uh, that businesses think? Are they are they making genuine strides there? I think they're all good examples of a body of very very strong ideas. And Labour has got a very strong team right across the piece: Lisa Nandy, West Streeting, Bridget Phillipson, uh, Rachel Reeves has, be, has been a very strong performer as Chancellor if I could offer just one, two, two little tiny insights into Labour where I think they've got to be careful coming into the new year. The first one is the forceful management of candidate selections to be candidates to stand for parliament at the next election. Keir Starmer is determined to make sure that the parliamentary party is filled with high quality but loyal candidates who can see themselves becoming ministers and will therefore behave themselves and support Keir Starmer's agenda for the same reason you mentioned before that the Tories have effectively only really got a majority of 20 because of their kind of rebellious ERG types the nut jobs on the back benches I think the same could be true of Labour so Keir Starmer's managing this very aggressively and I think he's at danger of seeing very coming across as very dictatorial He's also recently chucked out, by the way, a troublesome National Executive Committee member, Naomi wimborne Idrisi, who's from the Jewish Voice for Labour group and a very, very prominent Jeremy Corbyn supporter. Starmer would dearly love to kick Jeremy Corbyn out of the Labour Party, and that would be a big, big win for him, frankly, if Corbyn turned around and said he wanted to be an independent candidate as an MP or to be the next mayor of London to run against Sadiq Khan. The other thing, which maybe we'll talk about in another part of the podcast, is Labour's got to be clear about what our future relationship is with the European Union, because at the moment they're ducking the issue.
1: I think uh, you make some really uh, really good points there. I think if I said to you, tell me something that you've read that a Conservative said that you disagreed with. I mean, I, I saw a tweet at the weekend from John Redwood. Was saying They're saying the NHS say there's not enough beds. Well, why don't you have more beds? And I thought, I-, I thought, that's ridiculous, that is, because obviously if you have a bed, you need to have the staff to be able to manage that bed. Um, and, and, you know, Michael Fabrigant, him with the hair, you know, he comes out with ridiculous statements, you know, uh, tin statements most weeks on Twitter. Now, I look, at the concert- I look at the Labour Party, and this is where I think Keir Starmer has done a good job, is he's got his MPs, into line, so you're not reading many um outrageous comments from Labour MPs. Uh, in fact, the opposite. I, I couldn't warm to Diana, but I never could warm to Diana, but she's like disappeared, and even to the point actually, there she's on one of the podcasts that I listen to and she came across as really nice. She 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 was She's in the right position now, so no, I think you're probably right. And I think if you were taking this as a business analogy, what Keir Starmer is doing by getting rid of these meddlesome MPs, we think could cause him a problem three years down the line when he become Prime Minister no, he's, he's, not, be. sort
0: of, he's not getting rid of that many there's only been one that's been deselected which was Sam Terry in Ilford uh, North and on the whole it's selections for seats that the Conservatives hold that they're, that they, they're hoping that the Parliamentary Party when Labour wins the general election is stuffed full of loyalists to him just as Jeremy Corbyn tried to parachute his candidates and rig selections for, uh, for his candidates when he was a leader
1: it's really interesting insight, and I'd love to be back here this time next year and see where we are. Um, hopefully, our friends at What Media and Oscar Technology will continue supporting us for the next year. But <laughs> I think that's the uh, that's the end for the first part of Northern Spin. We'll be back after the interval, which incidentally is available to sponsors. <music> Welcome back to the latest episode of Northern Spin. This is the second part of our 19, 1922, uh, that feels like 1922, 2022 uh, look back of an amazing year with uh, me, Chris and my friend, Michael Taylor. We're going to review my long journey into becoming more Northern, thanks to uh, Michael's tutelage. Um, But before then, let's talk about what's been happening across the North. And for this, Michael is going to uh, take the lead. Yeah, one of the themes we
0: keep coming back to on this political podcast is that we want to have us uniquely Northern than take on things that obviously plays out with our politics culture sport as well as what we both rub up against in our jobs in journalism and for me until my, my job recently was in was actually in politics i want to pick up on a couple of stories that started the year the leveling up white paper which andy haldane formerly with the bank of england took time out from his job as chief executive of the rsa to write this flowery paper with michael gove and linked to that the second issue is mayors as the focal point for a new political settlement for the North. So we've got a new mayor in the North uh, this year as well, Oliver Coppard. The Labour candidate was successfully elected in the South Yorkshire Combined Authority. I don't think there was ever going to be any other outcome. But how are they doing? But first of all, before we go into mayors, let's have a look at levelling up. So I wrote a story back in February when the levelling up white paper came out for the big issue in the North magazine. It was a cover story, and the headline was Dial M for Muddle. I spoke to civil servants, retired and serving, local politicians, academics, planners and think tankers about their whole assessment for it. Actually, I read it back, Chris, and I actually quoted Nicola Headlam because I've been on a seminar with her. She was fantastic. Then, as she is now, she was a special – she was our first special guest, wasn't she? She was, yeah, absolutely. indeed. So levelling it was the big idea of the 2019 Tory election campaign to give left-behind towns the opportunity to flourish. And the language in the report was, as I said, very flowery. There was talk of the example of the Renaissance-era Medici-Florence and releasing the potential of every place. I used a corny device in my piece to look at the fates of four places in the north, Manchester, Middlesbrough, Morecambe, and very, very deliberately Marple, where I live, to see how those ideas work in practice. Now, the obvious critique pointed out there was actually no money committed to levelling up, just a recognition that government needed to be more joined up and agree a set of 12 national missions to grip poor productivity. So, Chris, any thoughts so far? What What was your take on Leveling Up? At well,
1: I was one of those people. I'm probably less cynical than you, um, but I was uh, I, I was enthusiastic about Leveling Up as I was about the Northern Powerhouse as well. And uh, it's one of the reasons why um, I think they won so many seats in the Red Wall seats because because um, Boris Johnson did have his cut through. He excited a lot of Northern seats along with Brexit as well. Uh, now I know we had COVID, but Leveling Up's never got out of the station. Let's be honest. You mentioned Nicola Headlam, in chief economist at Manchester tech firm Red Flag Alert, former head of uh, the Northern powerhouse, a civil servant. She says she was the worst civil servant ever because I think she's just too honest. Um, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but she she painted a picture of a prime minister at the time, in Boris Johnson, who wasn't interested in detail, wasn't really committed to Leveling Up. The Conservatives' obsession, and this is a thing that's really stand out, that sort of stood out to me during her interview, that she said the Conservatives' obsession with Brexit really meant nothing got done for 10 years. And I think that meant there was no meaningful progress in terms of levelling up. Now... Liz Truss came in. We would uh, do this podcast every week and we'd look at mentions from Liz Truss of levelling up in her seven weeks in office. There were none. It was embarrassing. Then uh, Rishi Sunak came in, obviously a northern-based prime minister, but I think northern in in name only. Um, And I get the impression he's got more, you know, pressing matters in his inbox than levelling up. Um, And then you saw the watering down of the northern powerhouse rail, talking about the core. And then you realise when you see that, really, this is where the north sits then you get the excuse that we've got for a rail service in Avanti. I noticed they paid a dividend, um, you know, last week, which uh, attracted a lot of criticism, quite rightly. So Trans Pennine Express, you know, and that could be a metaphor, really, for levelling up. It, it's just a, a shabby excuse. Uh, it's just, it's just but, rhetoric. Yeah, it's an empty, it's an empty slogan, isn't it? It is, yeah. So I had, I had
0: three problems with the whole the whole thing to be honest with you first it had all actually been attempted before it wasn't like it was you know you you said you were attracted to the idea it's you know it's motherhood and apple pie who wouldn't want places to be more prosperous than they are already and um, the economic analysis of it might have been sound but the actual diagnosis and the treatment and the prescription there was, there was nothing there michael heseltine had tried it new labor tried with a whole new industry of urban regeneration, which I wrote about through the first decade of this century, led for the most part by the regional development agencies, which the Tories abolished in the bonfire of the Quangos under George Osborne and David Cameron. They then came in with their equally gimmicky Northern Powerhouse and uh, the Midlands Engine. But mainly, though, it's nowhere near enough. When East Germany was unified with the West in the early 1990s, the German government had a unified mission to level up their country to increase the economic prosperity of the east and it cost an eye watering the 2 trillion euros because it was seen as a national mission and nothing like that has ever even been attempted to to try to boost economic performance because they've just been so short sighted and they haven't even extended initiatives to the you know you look at economic initiatives in germany like the fraunhofer clusters of industrial excellence and there's nothing like that There might be the odd little pocket here and there for things like GM innovation in Manchester to boost a little bit of research and development from our universities. But compared to the Fraunhofers, it's absolutely nothing. But finally, Chris, I think the main reason a lot of this all falls over is because the politics gets in the way. Any hint that there's a popular mayor getting a little bit too powerful or, c- or getting some electoral traction, then the battle lines are drawn and they try and clip their wings with some tactical decisions like they've done with Andy Burnham. And, the, and then next thing you'll see is that Tees Valley gets a, a visit and a promise of some another little bung of cash down there for their favourite Tory metro mayor, Ben Houchen in the Tees Valley.
1: So... What do you think? I think we've got a problem, Michael. And the problem is that we are agreeing too much on this final podcast (laughs) of 2022. We're going to have to take the gloves off big style because um, I don't like the partisan nature of the mayoral system. So when Trust and Sunak were locked in a ridiculously long leadership battle, we had, while we were sleepwalking into an energy crisis, we had this eight-week um, you know, face off between Truss and uh, Sunak over who's going to be the next leader, and ultimately they both became the leader. I mean, that that's the folly yeah. of it. Yeah. Trust described Andy Burnham as a miserableist mayor, um, which which says a lot more about Trust than Burnham, I think. And that that goes to show what what Liz Trust was like.
0: But she was appealing to her constituency at the time, which was North Greater Manchester. Um, conservative activists who were the electorate for this. Um, for this, that's
1: exactly yeah, and you,
0: and you get a cheap shot by by. It, having a go at Andy it, Burnham.
1: Yeah, exactly. But but you can look across the, the, the whole piece with her. You can look across the fact, you know, what's the UK's relationship like with, you know, France, where well, the jury's still out? You know, stuff like that, yeah. which has massive yeah, ramifications. Yeah. That's where she was so short of any common sense. I think what's interesting is when the five Northern MPs um, for West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire, Manchester, Mares, Liverpool... The Mayors, rather, sorry. Yeah, yeah, they, they it, got
0: together with Mark Harper. They got together
1: they? with Mark Harper. They had to, I think, the 30th of November, actually. They're all Labour, right? They got on pretty well. You'd expect it to. The only Conservative mayor who you mentioned, actually, we're slightly uh, loggerheads with because when I speak to people in Teesside, they like Ben Houchin. He gets stuff done. The problem with Ben Houchin, and I've spoken to people, he's got a very thin skin, so he won't do anything which sees him in the same room as um, Labour mayors. Um, And I think, I mean, he's obviously been tipped to become a, uh, a peer in the House of Lords as well. Um, and that's a that's a disappointment. So, you know, Ben, if you're listening to this, I think you're doing a decent job in Teesside, even if my colleague next door to me blames you for all the deaths of uh, crabs in your constituency. And
0: you pay yourself too much.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You can you come on, Ben, and talk about that as well. But I just think that we've always spoken about the fact that it should always be placed above politics. Absolutely. And whatever party we might be aligned to, and you're clearly aligned to Labour, uh, and I'm a Conservative with a lowercase C, it should be the place first. And I think that moving forward, I think that, you know, we've got to try, and it's not easy, you've got to try and take some of the politics out of this mayoral system. Well, I'll give you an example. So I, uh,
0: I started the year by being awarded my
1: master's degree for my academic thesis,
0: Devolution and Democracy, a study of networks and narratives in Greater Manchester which um, I think if you read it, you'd probably double the readership of it yeah. in addition to the people who marked it and gave me a degree. Did you get a first? No, you can't get a first. You can either pass or fail, and I passed. Okay. I then went to work for Elise Wilson, last week's guest on the Northern Spin podcast. She was great, incidentally. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, she's great to work for as well, by the way. But anyway, on Friday, I was back in Churchgate House, the headquarters of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, attending as a journalist at a press conference on skills devolution. And then, of course, I went to the uh, end-of-year media party. The main power that I argued in my thesis, and this was reinforced last week, is convening power. It's not actually... It's no fiscal power. There's no power to raise taxes. There's no power really to bring in new laws. It's actually all... in. Inherently built into the, the charisma and retail purchase policy of a, of a mayor with, with, with the status of Andy Burnham. And to give you an example, his latest pitch this week, which I've written about, and he's a lead story on thebusinessdesk.com this morning, is to bring together colleges and employers to basically dig the government out of a hole on T-levels, which they've invested an enormous amount of money in. They haven't really caught on. Employers don't really take them seriously and therefore they don't sign up and let kids have the work experience opportunities. So the take-up of T-levels has suffered. Andy Burnham's made a very audacious and generous offer to government to say, we're going to create a system and engage with our private sector to make T-levels work. Now, he hasn't got the power to make that happen. He'd once again go into Whitehall not on bending knee because he's going with a very with an offer actually to dig them out. I um, you mentioned it's, t- it's good politics and it's you know I think George Osborne always imagined that some local business figure would be the independent mayor of Greater Manchester rather than it be party political rather than some sort of over promoted councillor who wouldn't have the experience. I think Andy Burnham's upset the apple cart and all of that because he's got cabinet level experience. Is people like him and he gets stuff done and he's prepared. You know, despite all these manoeuvrings in the Labour Party, he's prepared to reach out and offer, offer the government make meet them halfway on, on things like this, dig you, them, out, dig them out, say, out of the hole.
1: You say T levels have failed. I mean, Gillian Keegan, the uh, education... It's, it's early days.
0: And, yeah. And I think by their own... There was a report commissioned and published in October this year, not, not two months ago, which said they have not taken off to the extent that was envisaged. COVID didn't help, grant you that. But... Um, but yeah, they've got, they've got a way to go.
1: I'd be interested to know, actually. I uh, remember I used to do a lot of work in Rochdale, so I interviewed uh, Hotwood Hall College in Rochdale as well. And they were really enthusiastic about T-levels at the time of their launch. What I don't know is whether or not they've taken off. So yeah, we'll have to watch that one.
0: Yeah, yeah, we should do. Um, anyway, Michael Gove's now back at... Um, he
1: was the first levelling up Secretary of the Year yes. and the last one.
0: I, don't, I can't remember who the other one was. I've been racking my brains Greg all the way Hans. Through this.
1: Greg Hans, briefly. Never heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you need Hans? Yeah, Greg Hans and then obviously Simon Clarke for seven weeks. Wow. Well, they were the four. What,
0: can you imagine you say to your grandchildren, I went oh, into politics to make a difference. I was levelling up secretary for five
1: minutes. Well, I think that's what's going to happen, actually, because there was an education. You know when all the Conservatives resigned? Uh, I think there was 58, 68 resignations at Boris Johnson. There was an education secretary who was in post for 12 hours. So in years to come, that education secretary is going to be talking to their grandchildren. What did you do during your life? I was education secretary for 12 hours. You know, probably the 12 hours that they were asleep, but I don't know. Anyway, so Chris, uh, Michael Gove is indeed
0: back at the Department for Leveling Up. There's talk of more devolution deals to be announced in the new year, which was sort of part of the dance that Andy Burnham was performing last week in writing to government. Or this week. But you live in Lancashire, right? And I get the impression, <clears throat> and I was on BBC Radio Lancashire last week talking about this with Graham Liver, um, that there's actually a little bit of resistance from councils up there to combine, to form a Lancashire combined authority and a seed power upwards to a single figure that might sit in Preston or wherever, County Hall. And, uh, and there's a bit of resistance to the idea of having a mayor for Lancashire. Whoever yeah. may
1: covet that title. So, are you asking if I'm going to be the next mayor for Lancashire? Well, I could ask that, okay. but I wasn't. No, I, I think, look, you're 100% right, but I love Lancashire. I lived there for 17 years, but the county is really fragmented um and and there's lots of talk about the fact that they're getting on a lot better but they do lack a figure like an Andy Burnham in Manchester like a Steve Rotherham in Liverpool you know I was looking back through the history books it's 11 years now since the 700 million pound Tide Barn project in in uh, Preston was abandoned after John Lewis pulled out uh, of the project people think of Liverpool 1 in you know, Liverpool 1 followed Tide Barn you know unfortunately Lancashire couldn't deliver a Tide Barn so that to hit the buffers and four years ago you had ikea pulled out a major scheme at lancaster central in curing at the bottom of the m65 you know that was going to be there was going to be the anchor tenant Um that's going back to the planners now four or five years later chorley council who i do a bit of work with full disclosure and um, burnley council with the burnley bondholders they've done some good work but it's sporadic. And it's it's fragmented it would be wrong to say um, that nothing's happening in Lancashire. Far from it. There's a big announcement earlier this year, uh, back end of last year, actually, when the government said that the new cyber attack agency, known as the National Cyber Force, will be based at Salisbury. I think that's going to be like a billion pound scheme. Actually, that, wasn't that a lot to do with the fact that Ben Wallace,
0: the Defence Secretary, is a Lancashire MP, um, and, and that BAE, BAE Systems have already got an established base there? And actually, most of the most of the cyber resilience force in the north of England. It's actually based in Manchester. Yeah. it's GCHQ are here. There's a, there's a fairly resilient cluster of businesses from the from tax the sector, which I don't need to lecture you about.
1: There was a name that was thrown at me, right, okay, in terms of who do you think should be the next mayor. And somebody said, what about a guy called Tony Attard? Now, people outside Lancashire might not know which Tony Which political
0: party is Tony no, related
1: to? That's the point, though. That's the point. See, Tony Attard was that in charge of a yeah. business called Panaz. Okay, and then he, I think he was involved in marketing Lancashire. I think he might have been involved in the LEP. But he's somebody who's not steeped in politics. He's somebody who's not steeped in politics. He's somebody who comes from a business background. And, um, you know, I don't know what his, his sort of um, political persuasion is. Well, but, the thing but, is, Chris, this is politics,
0: you n- and you have to be. Andy Street was the managing director of John Lewis, and he became the West Midlands Combined Authority Mayor in a, in a region as dis, you know as displaced and as... Disparate as the as the West Midlands but he did so as the Conservative Party's candidate I think it's massively naive to assume that somebody just because they're charismatic and good that they can do so independently of the political forces the ground game that you require Rory Stewart talks a lot about this when he made some initial moves to be the independent candidate to be the um, to, to be a, uh, a candidate for mayor of London it's really hard to do so outside of politics.
1: Mm. No, I'd so. agree with that. And I don't know, incidentally, what Tony Attard's thoughts are. I know he's recently stepped down as the, uh, uh, the chief executive of uh, Panaz, but um, he's the sort of person, it needs a figurehead. And I don't know what party, um, you know, in a sort of political persuasion he is, if indeed he is at all. But uh, Lancashire does need a voice, no question.
0: Okay. Well, we'll uh, have a quick interval. And after the break, we're going to be talking all things cultural in 2022. And we're going to have a little bit of an examination about Chris's journey to become a little bit more Northern. Welcome back to the final third of Northern Spin. And I'll look back on the last year. Now, Chris has made it clear that he doesn't like music much. He doesn't support a football team. He doesn't read books. And his favourite comedian, if I remember rightly, Chris, is Jim Davidson.
1: Not, not true, of course.
0: OK, but but you are on a cultural journey. And what have you enjoyed most about some of the cultural things I've tried to push your way?
1: Well, I've lived up in the North for about 17 years. Um, I've not lost my accent, clearly, but I do consider myself to be Northern. But, but getting this um, Northern lesson from you fast-tracked has been a real revelation. If nothing else ever came of this podcast other than your recommendation to watch Our Friends of the North, which was amazing, nine episodes, I watched it in the space of about three days. That in itself was, was payment enough for being forced to sit next to you and listen to your Labourist tendencies. Fantastic.
0: Well, I've got another one for you, Chris, which I didn't put in our script notes. Did you watch my TV highlight of 2022, which contained the galaxy of stars from British acting talent? And it was a TV drama which had its roots in the minor strike of 1984-85 and it was called Sherwood.
1: No, I didn't, but I'll watch it if it's anything like as good as um, Our Friends in the North. I think it's got, it comes close. It was absolutely incredible. Who was the main actor in that? Was it Chris Eccleston again?
0: No, it was um, David Morrissey.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: who played the governor in TV's The Walking Dead. We've got a friend Amongst of many ours. many other things.
1: We've got a mutual friend of ours called Andrea Wolfendale. Yeah. And she recommended, what's happy to her, mainly crime programs, she recommended Sherwood to me. Okay, great.
0: So anyway, let's let's carry on with the cultural tour. Let's break the things down a bit. So you mentioned before that you spoke at an event at Accrington Stanley. I spoke at an event on Sunday morning for the first time in three years. I actually read at Holy Mass at our church, at um, Our Lady and St. Christopher's Catholic Church in Romilly which I really enjoyed. Now I know religion can be quite an embarrassing subject for people to talk about and I don't profess to be a devout Catholic who could quote scripture at you. I'm probably a pretty rubbish one all told but I do go to mass most Sundays because I just think what's the worst that can happen? What if none of this is true but I take from it a few lessons in moral philosophy and I conduct my life in a slightly better way than I might have done had I not done this. So I it's a a chance to think, offer thanks, count my blessings and also to be part of something bigger and also to be part of a parish. There's something really magical about a parish, It's mainly older people, little kids. When I was reading by the way, I don't know if you've ever had a distraction like this at any of the events that you've spoken at, but a little baby crawled up onto uh, onto the altar and went around me and mum had to run on and Pick him up and take him away. Was which reminded man, me about
1: taking our kids
0: to church when we were.
1: Do they listen to Northern Podcasts, young child? Did you manage to yeah. get that in?
0: Oh, he will be doing now. Yeah.
1: You talk about church though, and like, I mean, you're you're a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. My when we, my kids, have we just
0: lost some listeners?
1: There? No. <laughs> when my when my kids went to uh, they went to a really good school in Chorley, but you had to have church attendance. And we went to a Church of England church because you needed it was Church of England school. And um, heretic. But but we but we went and we thoroughly enjoyed it. And COVID came along and you couldn't go to church. And I've not gone as much as I should have done. What I would say though, uh, my faith is very important to me. I, I pray every night, always pray every night. Um and uh, I, I, and it's important to me. And I feel you know and that's one of the nice things about doing this podcast actually that you find out things about other people like yourself that I didn't know. You know, obviously I knew you're a Rovers fan. Um, I didn't know your teetotal. Didn't know your faith was really important to you. Didn't know that actually you're an okay sort of bloke underneath all the Labourist tendencies.
0: <laughs> I will laugh at that one. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> one of the things that I must uh, that I did offer up, and uh, the, the voice of God came back: is stop being mean to Chris. Yeah. <laughs> 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 anyway so i'm just going to mention a few more of our cultural things so on i do a radio show on sunday nights on Tameside radio 103.6 you don't mention it very often no anyway uh, i don't mention it very often i ought to and i do that with neil summers who's a dear dear friend of mine and his influence on, my, on me culturally has been absolutely massive um I always liked music. I always liked new stuff, but I never really knew where to look other than the racks of Piccadilly Records. But Neil's taken me on a real journey on that. So anyway, here are my three top tunes that I played on Sunday night, which I picked as my highlights of the year. Oblique Fantasy by Jane Weaver, who is the, who we, know, we always refer to as the Kate Bush of Marple Bridge. I presume you've heard of Kate Bush.
1: I've heard of Kate uh, Bush, but I've not heard of any of these The Jane Weaver.
0: Uh, 100% Endurance by a Leeds band called Yard Act, who I was lucky enough to see at Blue Dot Festival at Jodrell Bank in July. Never heard of them. Now, Yard Act were heard by Elton John, and he thought, these boys are good, I like these. He invited them down to his studio at his house, wherever he lives, Hertfordshire, Watford, wherever, and and he's recorded a, a new version of their hit single,
1: uh, 100% endurance you mentioned Elton John my wife said to me she said Chris why don't we go and see Elton John next year it's his final in his final like you know series he's of doing Glastonbury concerts. as well isn't he yeah and I thought about it and it's 175 pound each I thought really really but she went to see Queen this year and she said one of the highlights of a year I mean obviously if they had uh what's the name of the guy who I don't uh, know Andy anyway I, it's I don't clearly guess, not Freddie but she Mercury. loved it she loved yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, live events, now they charge a lot of money because they don't make as much from physical record sales because the streaming companies have divided up the cash. I read a very interesting uh, academic thesis on this last year written by um, by an academic called Joe Taylor from the British Institute of Modern Music, who happens to be, by remarkable coincidence, my eldest son. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Chris, but my big, top, my big tip, I'm not going to pretend that you definitely fall head over heels for Jane Weaver or... Um, or Yard Act, but I genuinely do think that you would like Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band from Liverpool, used to be in the Pale Fountains. And he's got a top, top track from his new album called Broken Beauty. And it is the Piccadilly Records tune of the year. Well, I will have to give that one a listen. Yeah, good. So book-wise I've discovered Elizabeth Day, Lucy Foley. I really enjoyed Spinning Heart by Donald Ryan and The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne, neither of which are new. But my favourite Northern New Book of the Year was The Ballad of Hanging Lees by David Nolan. It's set in Oldham and it spans subjects that I always like reading about in dark fiction, crime, the North and nonces. so you listen to a lot of audible books Chris, any highlights?
1: Yeah, certainly uh, Adam Lambert uh, sorry, um, Adam Lambert, yeah, he's the lead singer for Queen you know, Uh, obviously that's the guy I was trying to remember Um, Yeah, I was looking through my audible books, I listen to about 40 books a year which is phenomenal really Yeah, I listen to a lot of books, I do a lot of driving you see and I like crime fiction so I've got into the uh, Jack Reacher books by Lee So I've read about three or four of those as unfortunately you completely ruined the end of every book by saying, you know the script is always the same, he goes to say dead-end place, meet somebody, hero, and then uh, sleeps with the uh, the main character, the main woman, yeah. and then saves a the day and never yeah. dies. Yeah, um, and, wins, and wins loads of fights. Absolutely, wins them all, yeah. yeah. I've got into something called um, Kerry Barnes, who is like a new Martina Cole. Okay. But the narrator is the same narrator, Annie Alderson, does both, and she's brilliant. Right. Um, Richard, but it's the terminology I love. I love her. Richard Osman brilliant writer Thursday murder club is what he's uh, he's um, you know perfected my favorite writer this year though and I tell you how it came about I listened to an interview with Peter Smykle on Desert Island Discs and he was asked if you could bring a book with you what would it be and, and he said, I'd bring something with me by Robert Galbraith, who I'd never heard of. Now, Robert Galbraith, Acker, J.K. Rowlings, has written the Cormoran Strike series. just been turned into a film, actually. Um, Look, it's
0: been a TV series. Yeah, They're on yeah, about yeah. the third series
1: now. Yeah, it is, yeah. 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 I don't like the TV series, um, even though the, uh, the main actress in it is the same lead who is in Capture which I did yes. like yes that's uh, right but but yeah if you've not listened to Robert Galbraith I didn't like the sixth one the Black Ink one but uh, yeah I, I've listened to a lot of books and they're my recommendations for the year
0: okay now I love live events as well um, spoken word events talks uh, literary festival, stuff like that. I really missed going to things like that during uh, when we were all told to s- stay at home, save lives, and protect the NHS. So this year I've tried to get out as much as possible. And I think my highlight was probably the kite festival, which I went to in the summer, where I saw the actor, Mini Driver being interviewed by a journalist originally from Wilmslow called Miranda Sawyer. Now, I'd never really given Minnie Driver much of a thought. I thought, yeah, she's a perfectly good actor. I've seen her in a few films. She's all right. But it was absolutely fascinating. And it's those serendipitous moments where you just stumble upon, you know, some content that you've... I mean, festivals was, was, was great for that.
1: What was fascinating about Minnie Driver, though? Because, you know, like you, if you said to me, describe Minnie Driver, I could probably name a couple of films that she was yeah. in, and that's about it.
0: Yeah, it was her background, her life, how she... She's um, British, isn't she? Yeah, she's British. She's been in California. I think she lives back in this country now. Um, She was just really forthright and she wanted to turn the tables a little bit on the tabloid intrusion into her life. And, And she was really ballsy and interesting, stood up for herself and she told an amazing tale about when she ran away from living with her dad in Barbados to go back to Britain to live with her mum and stayed in this hotel in, in Miami on her own when she was like 12. It's just beautifully well told. Great stories. And I think she called her book memoirish, right. which was really good. I'll lend it to you. Anyway. Yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah. Anyway, you, you're a big cricket fan. Any big standout moments? And, of course, you're a big lover of uh, women's football, yeah, which has had yeah. a great year.
1: Absolutely, yeah. If I... um. I, I sport really gets me going. So, you know, we're recording this on Monday, uh, the day after we watched the World Cup. Obviously, you boycotted it, so you probably don't even know the result. Yeah, what happened? Um, yeah, you, it, was, who won? Uh, it was Argentina won on penalties. Oh, right. As mentioned, my my late nan uh, was raised in Argentina, so they were my uh, second favourite team. Uh, not. Um, but anyway, the only moment in sport this year that made me really uh, made me well up was the Lionesses when they beat the Germans at Wembley under the amazing coach... Serena Viegman, my, my daughter I mentioned before she's, a, uh, she's 19 she's a goalkeeper she plays uh, in tier 3 and what happens the BBC do um, various uh, like special masterclasses with some of the uh, lionesses and they've done two with uh, Ella Toon and with Alicia Russo and both times they've needed a, like a goalkeeper for the purpose of the video. Uh, and both times they've uh, got Imogen. Um, she's, they're not there for Imogen. She's there to, uh, just to be there. But uh, yeah, love that. One of the highlights this year for me was uh, going to Man United to watch Man United beat Norwich 3-2. And Ronaldo scored a hat-trick. And I remember saying to Imogen at the time, I said, look, we're watching history here because you're not going to see another player like him, not in the flesh. And uh, obviously it went, uh, it went downhill after that for, uh, yeah. uh, for Ronaldo. The actual, one of the other highlights for me, sporting highlights, was watching Papua New Guinea versus the Cook Islands at Warrington in the Rugby World Cup. That was fantastic. Uh, fantastic for the North as well. And uh, I love sport, as you know.
0: Well, I think my sporting highlight probably was going to the Spurs Stadium in January at the beginning of the year, thinking back. I was doing this Odyssey with my mate Sam Jones, where we were going to follow the FA Cup from Radcliffe to Wembley. He dropped out after Radcliffe and ended up doing it on my own. But I sort of got to the third round and went to Spurs against Morecambe at the new Spurs Stadium. And that is an absolute architectural wonder if you ever have the chance to go there I've to see it. anything. 5 1? No, it was, it was only 3-1. Is it? Morecambe actually took the lead, which was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I, I, we didn't bother going after that because you're basically paying big money to watch big teams in London after that. Yeah. But uh, we've been to all the, all the different grounds. Yeah, another the, one of your pledges that you didn't see through. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did a little bit better than my mate Sam, though, who yeah. abandoned me on that tour. Yeah. But yeah, it was good. And comedy. Now, I know neither of us have actually had the opportunity to be invited by any one of our corporate sponsors, guests, or people who often then... Um, Enrich journalists with favours yeah, uh, to take them to hospitality which you get all the time I'm, I've been way out of the loop on all of that and um, we haven't seen Peter Kay on his current tour yet, but I don't think Roy Chubby Brown's been touring and I don't think you've had the opportunity to go and see Jim Davidson this year.
1: No, right? obviously I, I, I take solace in the fact that I've got my Jim Davidson box set, um, not. Um, yeah, in terms of if I was to be offered some corporate hospitality and I haven't been offered any of any substance for a while, Peter Kay would be right up there on my list. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and it's great to see him back performing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, well, I saw two of my absolute favourites this year as well. Stuart Lee at the Buxton Opera House, and he was just fantastic. It was called The Snowflake Tornado Tour, and it's now available on the BBC iPlayer, but you can't beat going to see someone in real life. And I saw, probably for about the fifth time, the political comic Matt Ford. And you listen to his podcast, don't you? Yeah, I do listen to yeah. his podcast, yeah. And well, if and he's, he's touring again, I'll tell you to come along or maybe grab a grab a word with him if afterwards. If I to recommend
1: another podcast, I'd recommend Wondery's, um podcast on um, Boris Johnson. It's sensational.
0: That's the Scandal one that he does with Alice Levine, isn't he's it? Brilliant, yeah, yeah brilliant. Because he does, he does the impressions really well. <laughs> he does. I reckon he could do a good one of you. Yeah, it wouldn't be hard. Anyway, Chris, culturally the most important thing that happened to our country was the death of Queen Elizabeth II. In September this year, the rock, the unifying force, the symbol of deference in many cases, but also very much a symbol of service and resilience. So I was wondering whether things would change. But I think the current nonsense in the papers about one of her grandsons really proves that it hasn't. We just seem to be as nasty and divided as we ever were. And that's really brings us on to who we think the heroes and zeros of 2022 are.
1: You know, when you look back on the year, you think, where were you moments? And where were your moments when you heard that the Queen had died? And that was the moment where, as a 50-year-old, I've only ever known one monarch. It's strange to think, on Christmas Day, we're not going to have the Queen's speech. You know, we're going to have the King's speech as well. And it's things like that that really sort of change your role. In terms of the whole... Um, Meghan and Harry stuff. You know, I'm not a fan personally, you know, but I respect their right to talk about it if they wish. I don't know if you saw Jeremy Clarkson's outrageous comments over the weekend in The Sun. No, horrible. Horrible. How? Horrible. How- <laughs>
0: Where, where's the editor telling him, Jeremy, I don't think this is a good idea.
1: And the thing you talking about, you know, showering Megan with excrement, and you think to yourself, and, and Carol Vorden has actually come out, and, 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 and it's, it's just outrageous. The thing is, all that does is it just plays to the idea that the country is against Harry and Meghan. And I think most people don't really care, but it's just horrible and it's just disgusting. And there should be some sanctions taken against him. When I was looking back on my heroes of 2022, the obvious one was President uh, Zelensky and and the people of Ukraine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I remember, um, I think it was a Sunday, the 25th of February, and I, where were your moments? And I was watching my daughter played football for Brighouse against um, Andy Campbell's Middlesbrough. And I'd read that day that uh, President um, Putin was talking about nukes. and I remember watching it and it was a really mild, really mild February. And that's been one of the things about this year. The weather it has been too mild. The climate's been a real concern. And I remember watching it and thinking to myself, how long will this last for? You know, here we are watching a game of football and not far away, you know, you've got two Western countries at war and we're now like 200 and some odd days into it with no sign of any end to it. But what President you know, Zelensky has done has just been awe-inspiring. Yeah, it's
0: courageous um, as well.
1: I think people like Martin Lewis, the money-saving expert, I think he will be a hero for me this year because, you know, he is a wealthy guy. Um, he does everything right. Incidentally... He was born exactly the same day as me. He's, we're both 50, May the 9th. One of us has been hugely successful in life, and the other one is a money saving expert. Um, and my other hero of 2022 is the Lionesses coach, Serena Wiegmann. A lot of people talk about can you have, do you have to be from the country that you manage? And she is Dutch. Um, she helped Holland win the Euros previously. She became the England manager. She turned a team around under Phil Neville. That was struggling, Phil Neville did a decent job actually to a point, but she came along and within ten months she'd galvanize her team and uh, to the point that they' beat Germany two one. Have you got a hero I think you've got that my, my own World Cup boycott aside.
0: I think you can all just stare in wonder at the absolute football and magnificence of Lionel Messi, yeah. and what he's achieved you know he, he's, he's had an amazing world Cup he scored. You know, he scored two goals in the World Cup final and took his penalty with a aplomb in the shootout as well. Um, and it's the crowning glory for an incredible career. And if any of you out there have ever had the chance to, to see him live in the flesh when he was in his pomp playing for Barcelona, then, you know, I salute you because you'll have seen a genius at work.
1: But somebody who doesn't get the attention um, is Emil Martinez, the goalkeeper. Now, he's no, I, th- him, I, really. think, I
0: think he'll quite rightly get the attention for what he did in the World Cup final. But what I'm doing now is just yeah. saying this is a moment where history has been made, where you know, as a person of the year, Lionel Messi has won the World Cup for
1: Argentina, and he and
0: he deserves to be on the same level and pedestal as one of the people who died in the course of the last year, Diego Maradona.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was almost you know, it was almost like synergy that they should win the World Cup after he died. In yeah. terms of zeros, it goes without saying. A lot of the people we've mentioned in our podcast the Liz Trust is Boris Johnson's of the world, they would crawl into that category. But I'm going to pick uh, three others or four others. It's difficult to look beyond what's happened with Vladimir Putin because he's changed the world and he said he was going to change it. Um, if, look, Vladimir, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to... No, no, and, Christo, okay, no. Uh, But, uh, no, I mean, what he's done is horrendous. Um, I look at some of the politicians who've not covered themselves in glory. Gavin Williamson. Who resigned as Minister of State without Portfolio? That's a poison chalice, that role, because uh, Jake Berry was before him, after allegations of bullying. Uh, I, I I judge people how they behave around people, and Gavin Williamson behaves really bad. Uh, for the same reason, I'd throw Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab into my zeros of 2022. He's facing a series of bullying allegations. Quite clearly, there's a process to go through, and we have to uh, you know you know allow that to take place. But I don't like bullies. Um, I don't. And uh, Michelle Moan, Lady Michelle Moan, I-, I heard her speak at an event that you hosted many years ago. I didn't like what she said at the time. Um, I-, I don't like what's happened with her PP and £29 million contract that she got. So they would fall into my zeros for this year.
0: Well, I'm going to do a bit of a... So <laughs> we t- you, my heroes, can I just uh, ch- chip in on this one, which, you know, you mentioned the Michelle Moan stuff. That was brought to the attention of the public in the last couple of weeks in all its glory by David Conn from The Guardian. Who I used to work with it Insider all those years ago. What a fantastic journalist he is. And other journalists who've done some great stories this year, Alexi Mostras at Tortoise, uh, Jamie Bartlett for the work that he's done for the BBC on chasing the missing crypto queen around the world. Pippa Carrera who run the UK Press Gazette Journalist of the Year Award last, last week for a lot of her stories that exposed the complete rancid corruption at the heart of the Johnson government and the way that interviewers like Beth Rigby on Sky News have done well. So big up to all you top journalists out there. And again, to Helen Pidd from the, the Northern Editor of the Guardian, who I had the pleasure of running into on the train this morning, who lives near me. Um, Jen Williams, the, Williams, of course. Jen Williams, who's gone to the FT. who does fant- They do fantastic work telling the story of the north of England and, and, the, and the travails that our public suffer from. So that's a big one for the journalists. And as for my zeros, well, basically, I could just read out anybody that's ever served in the Conservative government. Johnson, <laughs> Truss, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, but I'm going to do a big, big zero to Jeremy Clarkson, who you mentioned earlier, and to Cristiano Ronaldo. What a big, spoiled baby.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can't argue. I mean, I think, where's he going to go next? I don't
0: know. Anyway, Chris, this is the end of the year. This is the end of the line for our podcast just for 2022. I just want to thank you as well for having the idea, for having the audacity to think that we could pull something like this off. And I think we have. I've really enjoyed doing it.
1: No, it's been great fun. Against all my it. better judgment. No, I've enjoyed it. And, and you know, look, we're surrounded by what media here as well. And we've mentioned Oscar technology at the start. But uh, yeah, what, what's really nice is when people who you don't know message you and say, actually you're giving me an insight into northern politics and politics generally that I wouldn't otherwise have had Uh, and thank you for opening my eyes to the labourish appeal that previously had passed me by I now see the world through completely different eyes
0: and the funny thing is now now that I'm a journalist I'm probably going to become far less labourish on this podcast than when I was when we started this when I was literally working for a labour group on a council yeah. where I was literally paid to be a behind-the-scenes advocate. I am going to speak out. I am going to say, I think they're weak on Brexit. I think they should be more forthright. I know why they're not. And I think that we can uh, maybe chip away at that in the new year.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we've got some exciting plans in 2023, but fundamentally we want to leave, um, you know, for our kids. We need to create a better world, yeah, a fairer world. we do. And we want
0: some guests as well. So if you want to be a guest on the Northern Spin podcast, send us your pitch. I think we've, we've I think we've done really well as um, tilting the balance. We're a couple of white blokes in our fifties, so and most of the guests that we've had on so far have been women. And I've been actively going out and making sure that I'm inviting other female voices to come on the podcast. People from a def- different ethnic background to us as well. I want their truth. I want their voice. I want them to come on talk to us on the Northern Spin Podcast. And
1: and actually, I got a message from somebody that is my wife's best friend who lives in Newcastle who messaged me to say that she loves Vim. She knows Vim really well. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic.
0: So thank you very much, all of you, um, for being on this journey with us on the Northern Spin Podcast. Um, We're now on Apple Podcasts. We've been on Apple Podcasts for a while. So please subscribe to us there or Spotify or Amazon or Google. All sorts of different platforms where you can get your podcasts. You can even watch us on YouTube. Um, one of our listeners, by the way, is also actually one of our viewers. Brian Bradley from Clark Nicklin Accountants in Stockport has told me to stop fidgeting. Yeah. But it, it's what I do to concentrate. It's probably early onset ADHD or something, yeah. Brian. I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. Um but do give it a listen. Thank you to Watt Media once again for producing this podcast, to Oscar Technology for sponsoring us, to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at northern underscore spin one from everyone here. Very happy Christmas. I'm Michael Taylor.
1: And a happy and safe 2023 uh, from me, Chris McGuire.